Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. We call this show Drilling Deep because we start the conversation with a chat about oil and diesel and energy. You need to drill for oil to get it out of the ground. So that means the name of the show is Drilling Deep. But we don't stop there. We bring on a guest of the week. And this week, it's Kevin Capuzzi of the Benish Law Firm. He is a bankruptcy litigator with the firm, which, by the way, also has a significant transportation group. He's here. Kevin's here to speak with us about how trucking bankruptcies are starting to rise. It's a great interview. Uh, He will be with us in a few moments. Let's talk about oil. The Department of Energy diesel price, the one that is used for most fuel surcharges, went down again last Monday. That's four weeks in a row and 13 out of 16. At about $4.29 per gallon, it is still about 19 cents more than where it was right as the Russian invasion of Ukraine began. Think about some of the days in the past year when the idea that diesel might hit $6 per gallon seemed entirely feasible. Given that the 19 cents gap with the pre-war price doesn't seem all that bad. But there are increasingly some voices out there who believe that we've hit bottom for a while. Their analysis is not focused on diesel, but rather on crude. Now, we know that diesel has surged well above its historical relationship to crude, But since the price of crude will ultimately be the determining factor or the biggest factor for the price of diesel, it remains the most important thing to look at. One of the voices that everybody listens to the most is Jeff Curry. He's the head of commodity research analysis at Goldman Sachs. Let's note that Goldman has long been seen as having a bullish bias when it comes to commodities, and it seems to produce, seems to predict an increase in prices pretty regularly. But still, what he says is something that people listen to closely. In an interview at the start of this week on Bloomberg TV, Curry said he saw a strong case for prices of oil, prices of oil measured as Brent, to be higher by the end of this year. He said Goldman's, quote, conviction in the bull case, close quote, has never been stronger. Among the things he cited were a lack of significant spare capacity, which is the oil market's ability to bring on more production if the world needs it. And with that, he's right. There really isn't a lot of spare capacity. I don't have a firm number on it because it varies, but nobody thinks that it's significant. He also sees that capacity as likely to be needed as China comes out of its lockdown. Curry was also pretty bullish about economic forecasts in Europe. And while he's not an analyst, Curry got support for his views also on Bloomberg TV from Russell Hardy. Hardy is the CEO of VTOL. VTOL is one of the biggest trading companies in the world. Hardy said that European energy consumption was down almost 25% this winter, according to their calculations, from a combination of conservation efforts and a warm winter. He questioned whether those conservation efforts could continue. We'll see about the warm winter next year. Here's a quote from him. The prospect of higher prices in the second half of the year in the sort of $90 to $100 range, is a real possibility. You don't have much room on the supply side, so the potential for a rally is certainly there. Now, let's note that Brent right now is trading probably about $83 or $84, so a $90 to $100 range for Brent is not a massive increase. On the supply side also, markets got a bit of a jolt this past week. The Energy Information Administration, which is an arm of the Department of Energy, it publishes a weekly overview of production and inventories. It's not considered as accurate as the monthly report, but that comes out two months later. So, for example, in the closing days of February, the report for December comes out. The weekly EIA numbers for U.S. production in December 
started the month at about 12.2 million, not really at, not about, at 12.2 million barrels per day, and then slid down toward the 12 million barrels per day level by the end of the month. Given that slide, it was a little uncertain where things were going to come out. And when those monthly numbers came out, it was a bit of a disappointment that it came in at 12.1 million barrels per day. There was increasing concern out there that some shale plays in the U.S. are starting to lose their productivity. And to get back to 13 million barrels a day level in the U.S., it's going to be extremely difficult, barring once again the industry going crazy and drilling like madmen based on a pile of debt. That is not likely to happen, and that is putting it mildly. The other big concern on the supply side is that while Russian output seems to be hanging in there, sanctions notwithstanding, when does the when does the Russian industry start to suffer as a result of companies like ExxonMobil and Schlumberger having pulled out? The country does not have the internal expertise to replace that knowledge base on its own. That's why the International Energy Agency, in a recent report, cut its long-term forecast of Russian oil output by a significant amount going out over the next few years. Let's note here that the three bullish reports were not shared by everybody, mostly on the basis of a projection of slow demand growth, and as a result of as a result of the possible recession, other voices reduced their forecasted price. Bank of America Merrill Lynch was one of them right about the same day that Jeff Curry was making his own bullish argument. The peak Brent number came recently at about $123 per barrel in June. We're about $40 per barrel less than that now. So we would have a ways to go to match that. But it does seem pretty clear that the big question mark now is more on the supply side than the demand side. So that should be the one to watch going forward. Let's move on here now on drilling deep. We've had a downturn in trucking. We know that. And we keep hearing of closures. And here at Freight Waves, we've written about a lot of bankruptcies in the business. But, you know, there's no one repository that adds up all the bankruptcies. And we're not going to have one today with our guest. But there are lawyers who do handle them. That's pretty much all they do. And we are pleased to have us with us today. One of them is Kevin Capuzzi. He is a partner with the Benish Law Firm. Benish does have a significant transportation group, though Kevin is in the bankruptcy group, but he does a lot of work in trucking. He's based in Wilmington, Delaware, where a lot of de- a lot of bankruptcies take place, I know. And uh, he's with us today on Drilling Deep. So, Kevin, welcome. Thanks for having me, John. So why don't you start out by telling us whether the bankruptcies in trucking are really starting to pile up, or is it just a maybe a guess that they are because things have turned down much? Is it, is it as bad as we a lot of people might think it might be? Yeah, so let me... Let me start by you made the point that there's no centralized repository. So a lot of this is just what we're seeing in the industry and in bankruptcy in general. Um, I think, though, we should go back to 2022. A lot of analysts thought that 2022 was going to have a tsunami of filings, essentially coming out of COVID, supply chain issues, rising gas prices, all those factors combined. And it ended up we didn't see that. Um, I think it could be that, you know, borrowing borrowing was still very available. Interest rates were low. We did not see a lot of filings. What we've seen so far, though, heading into 2023 is that's likely to change. Um, Year to date, from January 1 to essentially March 1, it's been the busiest on record uh, in terms of bankruptcy filings. Now, I can't say that those are transportation companies per se. But we are seeing a dramatic uptick in filing. So 
uh, I think the trend is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. All right. So you're talking about companies in general, not just transportation, but you have dealt with a lot of trucking companies that have gone into bankruptcy. When does, how long does the process take? I don't mean between filing and resolution, you know, but how long does it take between when a company's maybe doing okay till they get to the point where, hey, we've got to file? Yeah, I, I think what we generally say is it's about a year um, because for the most part, a bank or a lender will work with a company up to a certain point. And then they get pressure internally that, you know, they got to write off their bad debt or uh, clean up their balance sheet. So there will be a period of time where the lender works with the transportation company, but that patient's going to run out at some point. Money speaks, and when the money stops flowing, the, the lenders are going to force them into bankruptcy. Now, you and I are conducting this interview on a perfect day for that, uh, because BMO, the old Bank of Montreal, uh, just came out with its quarterly earnings. And I love their earnings, not because I care about how they did as a bank, but because they do this incredible data sheet uh, of how their various sectors are doing. And BMO has a transportation sector, which is about 90% trucking. And they break out in there a whole lot of things, the size of the bank of business, um, their, their write-offs, their allowances, and their impairments. And, uh, you know, when I looked at the numbers this morning that came out, they were worse, but they're not that bad. Um, it depends how you want to look at it. On write-offs, they went from, uh, these are all Canadian dollars, $1 million to $2 million to $3 million to $4 million. Over the last year, you could argue with two ways, $4 million is like nothing, or they quadrupled it, you know, depending on how you want to measure it. Um, the, the allowances really were the same, were flat to the quarter before. The impairments were up significantly. And this may go to what you're saying. I just wonder if the numbers don't look that bad, even though we've had a tough time in trucking, because maybe the bank is trying to work with the various customers, and eventually you might see that that fails, and you'll see those numbers later. Is that a, is that a workable theory? I think that's a fair assessment. I, I think what you're seeing is what we discussed, that uh, that post-COVID period where money was cheaper, it was easier to borrow. A lot of companies, a lot of transportation companies in particular are still riding that. But that's starting to end. That money is starting to dry up. Banks are, are, bar are allowing less borrowing. Interest rates are climbing. So I think you're seeing, and the BMO report supports this, write-offs are increasing. Now, they're not increasing dramatically, but they are increasing. And the trend is that it's going to keep increasing. And if you combine that with a reduced borrowing base, I think that's a perfect storm for bankruptcy. What is it that are killing these companies? I mean, you could say so many. You've got lower freight rates. You've got, you really don't have higher diesel prices, uh, depending on what measure you look at right now. Diesel prices, as measured by the Department of Energy uh, EIA weekly number, are 19 cents above where they were last year. That's really hardly a, a, a company killer. Um, or is it that the flow of funds that they've been able to use all this time are starting to dry up? What are, you, what are the problems that you've seen with the companies that have gone on? The main problem I see is the, the drying up of the funds. Um, like I said, money was cheap during COVID. It's not so cheap anymore. The, a corollary effect is because of that availability of funds, a lot of companies overextended during COVID. They bought too many trucks. They hired too many employees. Um, and that's all, you know, starting to bite them now when freight has slowed down. They might have too much capacity, and that's actually hurting them and forcing them into bankruptcy. Now, do companies, can, can companies reorganize in this business, or do they tend to just go Chapter 7 and get out? You know, you think of, of bigger companies that go Chapter 11, and they go through a painful reorganization. 
I remember hearing the CEO of one company that went through and said, you know, you never, ever want to go through this ever again. It's just horrible. Um, are you finding that trucking companies are using the U.S. bankruptcy laws to maybe get themselves together and continue on as going concerns? Or is bankruptcy and trucking usually a road to liquidation? It, it depends on the size of the company. Um, the larger the company, I think more la- naturally they're going to uh, trend towards a Chapter 11, which is a reorganization. Um, two of the biggest ones that I saw in the last five to seven years, uh, Hanjin, the uh, South Korean shipping company, and NEMF, uh, New England Motor Freight, they both filed Chapter 11s. Now, ironically, they both ended up liquidating in a Chapter 11. A Chapter 11 doesn't have to be a straight reorganization. Um, You can end with a liquidation, and unfortunately, both of those companies liquidated. Your smaller uh, mom-and-pop type trucking companies are either just going to turn the lights off or they're going to file a Chapter 7 and liquidate. Um, So I think generally in the transportation industry, we see the smaller bankruptcy filings, which are typically a Chapter 7. Also, in an industry with such low barriers to entry, it would seem to me that if, if if I'm a trucking entrepreneur and my company goes under through Chapter 7, it might be easy to just cut, kind of cut that out of my life and be done with it. And then what are the barriers to entry to not just starting up a new company? They're not that high. They've never been that high. This is one of the aspects of trucking. Do you see a lot of that, that somebody goes Chapter 7 and then bingo, six months later, you know, he's back in business under a different name? And that's completely legitimate. I don't want to imply that there's anything wrong with that. We see a whole lot of that. Um, at Chapter 11, one of the criticisms is that it's so expensive. Um, so, I mean, many of these companies can't even afford the, the file, the filing fee alone is over $2,000. You then layer on, you know, attorney's fees and, uh, fees to the U S government. There's something called the, uh, uh, United States trustee, which is the watchdog and all these bankruptcies. It adds up very quickly. So yes, to your point, throw it into a chapter seven, liquidate it, or just walk away from the business and start a new one. There's Nothing wrong with that other than potentially that it might hurt the uh, the owner's credit if they guaranteed any of the debt or are personally liable for any of the debt. And where is the debt usually owed to it? Is it just a series of individual banks that made small business loans or are the creditors something else? I mean, I, I always I check every day um, the uh, the Moody's and the S&P daily postings of their actions. Uh, and. There's very few transportation companies on there, but, you know, every so often about maybe once every two and a half to three months, we get a nice story out of it about a uh, an analysis of a company's uh, debt rating. Are, are these generally local regional banks that loan to a local regional fleet that maybe even if, if it did 48 states, it was still regionally based? That's correct. It, it's generally smaller banks. Um, sometimes you see small business loans, um, lines of credit. Uh, just general uh, a- available credit like that. Not We're not talking big borrowing bases that you would see in some of these big companies. Let's come back to something you said earlier, um, which is about banks working with companies and trying to work things out. How long do they tend to do that for? And what are the kind of things that they can do to just to extend out the payments? Yeah, so uh, th- this is called a forbearance. So a lot of times, uh, just say you have a loan, the loan goes into default. A bank might voluntarily forbear on its remedies. It it doesn't necessarily want to force this company into bankruptcy because at the end of the day, that might mean that the bank gets zero recovery. So in a forbearance situation, there's any number of scenarios. The bank could either extend out the payment terms. 
It could reduce the monthly payments owed. It could, uh, you know, seek additional collateral in exchange for some additional funding. So it, you can be creative. So it makes sense a lot of times to open a dialogue with the bank rather than saying, you know, I'm out of money, I need to file bankruptcy. Because a lot of times uh, the bank will be better off too working with, uh, with the borrower. Do they, are you finding a lot of cases where the, the company does go chapter seven? How much can the bank claw back with, the, let's say, on the sale of equipment? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's not a total write-off, but obviously a partial write-off. Are you finding any, is there a rough percentage you could quote? No, I, I can't quote you a rough percentage, but it just, it depends on what the bank's collateral is and, and the value of that collateral. Now, if it's trucks, you know, they depreciate pretty quickly, trailers even more quickly. Um, so oftentimes the bank is getting pennies on the dollar and, and unsecured creditors, anyone else is getting nothing. Right. Now, um, let's talk about diesel prices and how much of a factor that has been. It's, it's interesting when you jump on an earnings call for a publicly traded trucking company, even as, as crazy as diesel has been now for a couple of years, they almost never talk about diesel prices. And that, of course, is because they are able to use their fuel surcharges to push those diesel prices down onto the shipper. At least, you know, maybe not with 100% perfection, but with an attempt. Uh, how much has diesel been a factor in some of your companies who I'm assuming are smaller? Uh, maybe some aren't, but some are smaller. They really don't have the wherewithal to administer a, a good fuel surcharge program. And there they have to hope that they book, that they book rates uh, that can cover their fuel costs, but that's not always possible. Right. So what we're seeing in our mid-market companies and some of our larger companies, they're doing fine. Like you said, they they can build in the surcharges. They can they can work around this. It's the smaller companies that don't have the leverage um, to do something like that that are being hit by the fuel prices. And you'll hear it from the the owners of those companies that it is a real problem. So, what is your outlook then? Let's say for the next six months. So, I, I get the sense from you that you don't feel we've peaked. That we've still got a lot more bankruptcies to go. Yeah, I don't think we peaked at all. I think it's just starting. I think uh, the middle of 2023, um, even the second quarter that we're we're stepping into soon, uh, I think we're going to see a big rise in bankruptcies because I think that the the effect of COVID, the effect of the supply chain issues is hitting now. And when that hits, combined with the higher interest rates and the lower borrowing, I, I think it's a perfect storm for, uh, for bankruptcies. And we're seeing that just in the first uh, two months. 2023. Years ago in my career, I worked for McGraw-Hill. McGraw-Hill is now S&P Global. Um, and, uh, but McGraw-Hill at that point had a lot of B2B publications, business-to-business publications. And there was an executive there who said, a publication is dead five years before it even knows it. And uh, I don't know if the five years was the right term, but you, you get the point that, that the conditions that lead to an eventual closing down of a publication are in place long before the closing down occurs. Uh, I would guess given the the ease of entry and exit in trucking, five years would be too far. But how far out is a company really in trouble before it really knows it? I mean, I know that can vary depending upon conditions, but I think you get my point. Um, I, I guess what I'm asking here is how can a, a trucking company a lo- owner be alert to impending doom that maybe they might not see in the good times? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a five-year um window like like you're speaking about but I, I i do think that at least one year you can see the writing on the wall coming um and and you see this in especially these smaller companies over committing um taking on too much debt 
personally guaranteeing loans. Um, it's it's a recipe that at some point the bank is going to call it, and and we know that that's going to happen at some point unless the bank works with the company. So I, I do think that there's a year, maybe two year time frame that you can see a bankruptcy coming where. Um, if you think ahead and the company is proactive, they can reach out to their bank before the loan uh, comes due or before the uh, before a default is called and try to work with the lender into a forbearance or another situation to uh, extend their borrowing base. Are these loans that you're finding term loans or are they just revolvers? They're generally term loans in these smaller companies. And how long is the, an average term? Uh, an average term is generally under five years. Okay, so it's short term. It's a short, short term. term. It, yeah. it, does it have a balloon payment at the end? Yes, exactly. Okay, so that, that, that's the problem. The balloon payment looms, and that's is, is that the is that the final straw that breaks the camel's back? That balloon payment, and that's the and that's the two years that you're seeing is that the balloon the balloon hits, or you have you know these loans with very high interest rates, um, you know, essentially bridge loans. Um, but yes, it, the, the balloon is the straw that breaks the camel's back. A lot of times the monthly payments can be made when they're reasonable, but once that balloon hits, um, there's not much that can be done. Is there a ratio in, in, with all the work you've done when you're seeing companies that do well and companies that get into trouble? Is there kind of any debt to sales uh, ratio that you would advise is the kind of thing that people should stay under or above or you know just kind of be in line with? No, I mean, it's hard to say because it varies so much from business to business. Um, you know, it'd be hard to put an actual ratio on it. It's it's these companies that just get too far indebted um, without a reasonable runway to to bring in profit is is the problem that we see. You know, I've, I've heard this in the trucking industry so many times. We're our own worst enemy. And that goes back to my earlier point about capacity. It's It's so easy to get in this industry. Uh, I can't imagine, I can't think of another industry that it's easier to get into than, than, than trucking, um, except maybe Uber, but that's transportation too. You know? But um, is there anything that really can be done about it? I mean, this is just the nature of the business. It's got low barriers to entry. You have times of you know, the days of wine and roses when you can just do, make a lot of money. It's really hard to say, slow down, slow down. Uh, is this probably just going to be the, a regular feature of this industry for as long as we know? I think unless there's added regulation on the industry and those entries to or barriers to entry are are made a little bit more difficult, it's just what we're going to see. I mean, two years ago, uh, people could make a killing in the industry because freight rates were so high and um, it was easy to borrow money, easy to set up a company, easy to make money. Um, so I just think I, I just think it's the nature of the industry. Do you think going back to your point about companies you've seen that where a company liquidates and then six months later he's back, he or she is back with a new company. Do you think that are there are companies that are going into this and they, they want to grab as much money as they can during those really good days, like in 2022 or, you know, good parts of, well, let's say pretty much all of 2021 and through the first half of 2022. And do they figure if I have to go chapter seven, so what? That there's just really not a significant price to pay for it. They'll go through a couple of bankruptcies and, Maybe they'll start up uh, a new trucking company when things get good and make some money. Uh, this is such a cynical question or cynical approach, but I could almost see it happening. It, it's, it is a it, it is a, a somewhat of a cynical view, but I think it's true. There there's a lot of truth to be said that when when times are good, people are going to take advantage of the times, and there were a lot of of uh, 
new trucking companies that popped up in 2022 um, and in 2021 because things were good. And I don't think there were business plans in place or uh, proper planning to say what happens when that ends, what happens when, you know, we start entering into 2023 and these rates aren't as high um, and times aren't as good. I, I just don't think uh, most trucking companies, especially the smaller ones, look ahead like that and do that sort of business planning. Well, I'd like to say that I'll have you back on Drilling Deep, and certainly I would, but I get the sense you're going to be pretty busy for a while. <laughs> so one of those things, I, I like being busy, but it usually means that the economy's not good. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, but uh, I would love to be back. All right. Very good. Well, we do want to thank Kevin Capuzzi. He's a partner with the Benish Law Firm for joining us here today on Drilling Deep. Kevin, thanks again. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on Freightways TV and on all the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.